0: Hi, y'all! You're listening to "In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile."
1: I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This here is another edition of "Trying to Hurt Cats," the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks, and see what bubbles to the top. So as to not lollygag, here's the first quote. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the
2: sun? I think we automatically think because it's a dream, and we think, oh, if I, you know, if I could do this, i will be ultimately happy. The happiness has to be there before the dream. You have to decide that you're gonna be happy. The dream is not gonna make you happy.
1: But something getting in the way of you
2: trying to fulfill a dream could make you unhappy. Like if someone was barring you or... Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, if it's really your dream, then nobody can get in your way. I mean, if you're going to make it happen, you make it happen, despite everything else that everybody else says. You know, being an entrepreneur and a... I hate to use the term self-made man. I don't think that's a term I necessarily agree with because there's lots of people that, that have helped me um, and continue to help. And I don't mean financially. I just mean, you know, supportive wise and otherwise. I think that you... You work for yourself. Yeah. You created that. Yeah. Yeah. You don't take that for granted. Number one, I'm responsible for my own future, and I think so many people that rely on other people for that. Ultimately, we're all responsible for our own future. I have a friend that she is always dreaming of something different, but yet she does nothing to make it happen. Um, she waiting for someone
1: to do it for her.
2: Uh, I don't. I don't know if that, or she's scared, or and I don't mean that in a negative sense. But you know, it's okay to be scared. I, I you know, I almost took a big step last year that would have totally changed the course of my life and my kids' lives and in, in, in a move that, you know, I was almost convinced that I needed to do. And it would have changed kind of my my trajectory. And I had a pastor friend of mine say, you know, people all the time say, pray for doors to open. And he said, doors are always open, especially if you're a person that's a go-getter and, you know, you make things happen. Doors are always be open. you always have opportunities, but pray for doors to close. And so this particular opportunity I had, I really thought it might've happened. And I and, but the door closed on it. And when it closed, I knew it was closed and I wasn't going to try to push it open. You know, I prayed that, Hey, if this is not the right thing, then it, then it's not going to happen. And it didn't happen. And, and yet I ended up with, you know, I ended up with the second half of my year is one of the best I've had. I don't mean that financially either. I mean, just overall making things happen. And sometimes we think we can't better ourselves. And, you know, I, I had a goal this year and we're recording this. It's the end of 2018 to read, uh, 40 plus books. And I'll have read 40 plus books. Many of them, more than half of them business books. Most of them, and you can see someone behind me on the shelf up there, I would have never picked up off a bookshelf and read. But I signed up for a a leader thing that sends me two books a month and a guide. And yeah, and and I tried to stay on track and I did for the most part. But a lot of those books I picked up things from and read things. And I had one of my best years ever in creation and other things because of that. In other words, a friend of mine had said a quote one time, you know, sometimes we sit back and waiting for our ship to come in when we never sent one out in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so by doing, it's that serendipitous moment, right? We're doing things in the midst of doing things. Other good things happen to us. I got to say, because I'm looking over your shoulder at these books you're talking about, they
1: look so boring. My eyes are lighting <laughs> off. <laughs> look at the carpet. <laughs>
2: Some of them were, you know, not exactly fun, but they're great. All of them, all of them I learned something from and I made myself learn something from them. Do our dreams dry up like a raisin in the sun? No, I, 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 if we love them, they do. But if they don't, and it's okay too to change your dream. These people that make a list, Hey, I'm going to make a bucket list when I'm 15 years old or what I want to do. I don't want the rest of my life planned by a 15 year old. You know, I think when you're 30, you're going to have different dreams than you had when you were 20. And when you're 40 and 50 and, you know, and so on, uh, at least I hope so. So I'm, I'm okay with going, okay, this wasn't what I really thought I was going to do starting out. But, you know, this is how it ended up. I'm writing this book this year. And in the midst of writing the book, I created a trick that I'm doing on my show now because I wrote the story in the book. that I took the story and made it a live, part of my live speech or event but using a trick that I, literally the first trick I ever bought in a magic shop. It's the kind of trick you would never do in a professional performance, but I'm able to do it now because I tell a story that resonates with people and then I can show them the trick that the story is about. It all just kind of made sense, but I would have never even done that had I not started writing the book. You know what I mean? So one thing led to another. I didn't start Mm -hmm. the year by going, hey, I want to put this trick in the show. Mm -hmm. Um, It started out by me coming up with, writing this true story and getting on paper and then going, you know what, if I tell this story live, I think it has a place in what I do. And it, and so, you know, just one of those things, it's just a small example of going, okay, well, I didn't, I didn't start out for that reason, but again, that serendipitous moment going, okay, well, this other good thing came out of this in pursuit of something else.
1: Again? What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun?
3: I feel like the inference in the tone of the quote is that that somehow it does dry up. Like if your dream doesn't have room to breathe or become reality, then it's going to, it's going to like wither and die. So you need to like sort of set your dream free or kind of uncork that or whatever. And I started thinking about that ever since we talked and I thought, I don't know if I totally agree with that because I would actually argue in my own experience, the opposite, because quite often when the dreams that I've had, uh, when I've taken action on those dreams or tried to walk those out in real life, dreams are sort of disappointing when you try to uh, move them into the reality space. <laughs> and when when they start to become realized, the real life of the moment sets in and, and you realize the reason why it was a dream is because it's an idealized version of what could be not what is the dream actually gives you a hope that you don't have when you're sitting with reality. When reality is there, the dream, the ideal inside of your mind of what it could be or your hope in the potential of the thing isn't there anymore. It's now whatever it actually is. And quite often that's not going to be the utopia that you had in your mind. So when you, when I've had dreams um, and, and I've been again to act those out or kind of talk about them. And then they begin to play out quite often. Like when I get to the destination of whatever that is, it's sort of disappointing. It's not the uh, that you arrive and somehow it's the arrival that is the letdown. It's the nature of the arrival that's the letdown. It's just not going to be what you originally set out for it to be in your mind. You know, like for example, like in my own life, seeking pastoral ministry for so long, In my mind, I had this idea of what that would look like to engage in that journey and to kind of move through that process, and then eventually be shepherding a flock and all that kind of stuff. In my mind, this was a beautiful thing, right? And it had all these wonderful nuances and relationships and all that kind of stuff. And the reality of it, though, is a much more—it's a much tougher thing. It's it's more disappointing and. And it's, it's more hurtful and it's more real and it's more raw. And so that thing in my mind, that's where the hope lived and somehow the reckoning with reality is where the hope sort of withers when you face the reality. So the realization, the dream actually withers the hope, not, not the starvation of, of the dream. The starving of the dream or not being able to realize it is actually is what can allow you to hold on to it for a much longer period of time.
1: Again, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it
4: dry up like a raisin in the sun? I think deferred is an interesting point. I think mature adults frequently defer pleasure immediately For greater pleasure later. And so I guess, if you will, I would disagree with this quote, or at least answer the question in the negative. It does not. does not have to because sometimes um, if you postpone the dream, if you defer the dream, as the author suggests, um, it becomes bigger and better. Right now, I own a limited edition um, C7 Corvette Stingray. Only 500 in the world were ever made of these, and I got number 95. Wow. The story of this, of the, how the dream is deferred, is um, I'm in a, in a financial position I never thought I would be in, in my whole life. I'm a freaking gymnastics coach. I never thought I'd be wealthy, but here I, maybe a year But just to be clear, more, it's not like you're
1: taking like, kickbacks and bribes. You own your own place. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I
4: own uh, a couple of small businesses and whatever, and they do really well. Okay. So a couple of years ago, um, I found this Camaro. When I was a little kid, I always wanted a Camaro. And I found a 2012 Camaro, and maybe it was 2015 or something like that, that only had 15,000 miles on it, but it was a stick, which is what I wanted because you, you're when you buy a sports car, you're driving it when you have mm-hmm. a stick. Now, I understand these days with the paddle shifts and everything, an automatic transmission is actually faster than a stick, when in the old days, a stick was faster. Right. But I wanted a stick. But anyway... It, was, it sat on this um, dealer's lot uh, for nine months, and it was priced at $12,000. And I remember going into the bedroom uh, and going, Hey, Jen, I found this Camaro in Nashville, man, and it's only $12,000. And, I mean, we had the cash. I could go down there and just buy this car right now. And if I decide I don't like it, I could turn around and sell this for fifteen dollars or $20,000. I just have to be patient. And right now this dealership isn't willing. It's been on their lot. It's taken mm-hmm. up space. And she's like, I don't know, Ken, it just seems a little a little foolish. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, okay, it's no big deal. I'll I'll wait. I know uh she'll come around. There might have been a seasonal thing coming up, like a big expense for a volleyball tournament or something that was coming up that we were gonna have to shell out some money for and so i i waited and uh this time last year i found this corvette online and i wasn't supposed to buy a sports car till maybe the summer and again it was number 95 of 500 and had everything i ever dreamed about and of course this corvette's like way better than
1: how many years was between the camaro and this
4: about a year year and a half oh okay. okay So um, I deferred my dream of a Camaro for $12,000 for this, and I'm not allowed to say how much I spent on this Corvette because if my wife finds out, she'll castrate me. (laughs) Um, But she gave me permission. I went out to her and said, Hey, I found this uh, Corvette down in Miami, and it meets all my criteria. And I, I literally said to her, I don't want to create any problems or any financial stress. We have the cash. But if you object, even in the least bit, um, I won't even pout. I'll just say no big deal, and I won't go get it. She, my wife says, "Just go get it." So we drove down to Miami and picked up this Corvette. So, uh, long story short, totally do not believe that a deferred dream dries up like a raisin in the sun.
1: So obviously, to the people who don't know anything about cars, a Corvette's a whole lot better than. A oh Camaro.
4: yeah, this yeah. is four times the car that that Camaro would have been, right. and uh, it's awesome.
1: what happens to a dream deferred does it dry up like a raisin in the Sun
0: I've always been a dreamer and it's so funny cuz I was talking to my mom last night on FaceTime and we spent like three hours talking and um, she recently told me she was watching it's called Annie with an E is I think it's about Anne Green Gables on Netflix and she really liked it and I used to read the book when I was little and she said that the little girl reminded her of me she said my god this girl is such a dreamer and, like, she's telling her dreams to everybody. That's one thing she noticed about the girl. And, you know, I've always been a go-getter. Um, I've always, like, if I want something, I go get it. You know, my dad told me, you know, you don't work, you don't eat. You know, and ever since I was 16, I've always, I've, you know, I've paid for everything. I've never asked my parents for anything um, just because I really admire my dad. And I think he's a hard worker, and I don't want him to have to stress anymore. If you don't have a dream or you don't have anything that you're working towards, it's, like, you know, where are you gonna go in life? What are you gonna do? Um,
1: do you mind me asking what your dream is or was?
0: Well, I've always wanted to be a teacher ever since I was little. And right now I'm in school, be- you know, trying to become a Spanish teacher. So I feel like my dreams are coming true. And you actually
1: are teaching the class. And
0: I, yeah, I'm yeah. teaching a Spanish class, which that's what I'm gonna be in high school, hopefully soon. And you know, I've always, I've worked towards it. And there was a time when I took, I think like two, three years off of school, but that was to take care of my grandfather because he got sick. So I, I took a break from school. I kind of regret it because I would see all my friends at that time graduating college and I was like oh my god all these people are accomplishing their dreams they're doing what they want here I am you know doing nothing I was like I felt I kind of felt like a loser honestly but you were doing the right thing though yeah here I am you know almost 27 years old and I'm gonna barely get my bachelor's degree so I, I do kind of feel like I'm a failure in that sense but you know there's People who get degrees at 90 years old, so.
1: Right. And there's people talking to themselves out by the bus stop on here. <laughs> exactly, so that... you know.
0: And that's where dreams don't, you know, if you don't have a dream, that's where it's going to get you. where it you. is. <laughs> yeah, basically, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, I think, you know, I think it's important to have goals and dreams. And, you know, when I was looking for a mate, I didn't want someone who was lazy or someone mm-hmm. who didn't have dreams. Because I'm like, I'm a dreamer, you know. I need someone who's going to encourage me when I'm down. I want someone to lift me up, too.
1: So you remember that suffering that you had when you weren't able to work on your dream? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you depressed.
0: There have been two times in my life where I like literally been in depression, and it hit me really bad. I, you know, I'm I'm kind of a small person, so I lost a lot of weight. I was like 90 pounds. Smaller than now. Smaller, way oh, wow. smaller. Wow. Um, I was 90 pounds. I lost a lot of my hair. Wow. Um, there were times I had to force myself to eat. It, you know, I was happy with my family and I was home because it it was uh, I was in Indiana going to school. And he got sick. And then I ended. Up, I decided to move back just in case anything happened. You know, I would hate myself if I was over there. So, and at that time, I was the only one available who could take care of him, taking him to the hospital and all these things. So me and my sister, we decided to do it. And um, it was, I mean, even though I, I, I was kind of fulfilling, you know, I felt the love that I needed. But I was like, for me, I was not doing anything for myself. And I can't stand that. You know, if I'm not learning something, if I'm not doing something, ugh. And then, you know, I'm just like, I'm being idle. I can't stand it. The second time that I was in a dark time in my life was when uh, I moved to Kentucky. I had no job. There was like nothing to do. And we were like broke, broke, broke.
1: Why did you move from California to Kentucky?
0: Oh, because my husband, he had a good job and we just figured it'd be cheaper. Okay. You know, which it really is. So that's why we decided to move to Kentucky. But I had no job we had no TV, no cable, no nothing. And so I remember like days like I would literally take out my stuff one by one so I could make like do something because I was just bored and it was winter so it was dark all the time it was just so I got really depressed and same thing happened. I lost a lot of weight and my hair started falling. Um, I was just really really unhappy and then thankfully I got a job and I missed my family so so much and I think because when I went to college, it wasn't permanent, you know, like I could visit them and, you know, it was just for temporary. But when I moved here, this is like, oh, snaps, like this is the real deal. You're married, you know. And so it was like really, really depressing.
1: But then you had a purpose and you were okay. Exactly.
0: You know, okay. I, I was like, oh, my God, I'm in, I'm in the education field, which I want to. So it was, it was really good. And I feel like, you know, people have choices they want to make, you know. Someone could have stayed in that position that I was in and just been in there and been miserable over time. But if you don't get up and do it, no one's going to do it for you. No one's going to make it for, you know? Mm -hmm. So like you have to be that person who wants to do it.
1: Next quote. People think that a liar gains a victory over his victim. What I've learned is that a lie is an act of self-abdication because one surrenders one's reality to the person to whom one lies making that person one's master, condemning oneself from then on to faking the sort of reality that person's view requires to be faked. And if one gains the immediate purpose of the lie, the price one pays is the destruction of that which was intended to serve. The man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on.
5: My thing is this, that you cannot build anything on a lie. I think I get in trouble because I'm brutally honest and and my mouth is like a, a oil well, a gusher that I start talking and all everything I feel comes out. I, I actually told the church this, that there are times when I don't know what's inappropriate because it's not coming from a vicious place. It's like, and I use the example that I, I asked this, this lady, I was, my daughter is a hairdresser. And this lady that goes to the church was in, she was in there and she just had a and I And I asked, I said, is that your real hair? Because it was so beautiful. And I thought, <laughs> your hair? and she said, only you, Pastor, and just kept on, didn't even answer me, but I didn't, it wasn't vicious, I just thought, man, you, you is that's your real hair, and I, I didn't know that it was inappropriate to ask me.
1: All right, if I had said that, my wife would have kicked me. My but, wife probably would
5: have said, don't pay no attention to him, but I do stuff like that all the time, because I'm not being vicious, right. I, I'm really asking a legitimate question, and so I don't know what's inappropriate, because my daughters say it all the time. My wife say it all the time. They'll say something like inappropriate. Uh, but anything that's built on a lie, it's it's shaky and dubious well, at best.
1: Well, that's what I love about children. You know, they don't know yeah. any better.
5: And, and I am a child. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but no, I mean, it's refreshing. And sometimes kids will point out something that uh, all the it, adults are it, thinking, but they're but, too
5: polite to say. But what gets me in trouble is that if you, you say, uh, so what kind of dude is here? Well, other people will say, "Well, you know, I'm, I'm not going. You know, I don't want to." And I say, "Well, the guy, he, you know, he he stole my wife's car, and he and he's he smacked my kids, <laughs> and then you know, and then he went down the street, and then he stole the other people's car, and I then I start saying all this stuff, and and I don't think I have to put disclaimer, especially talking to ministers or talking mm-hmm. in a in a controlled setting. I don't think I have to say, "Well, I'm going to say this, but I'm I'm not being vicious." You, you ought to know me, number one. And number two, uh, you ask. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And sometimes people are picking you so that they can go back and say something that you said. And, and I'm thinking, you were having an honest dialogue. You said, What do you think about old George? Yeah, well, George, you know, George is a nut. Uh, he's crazy. <laughs> and then they, George, Hot uh, Tower said you was a nut. You know, <laughs> you shouldn't hang around Hot Tower no more. And people use that against me. And I'm, you know, being honest. So.
1: People think that a liar gains a victory over his victim. What I've learned is that a lie is an act of self-abdication because one surrenders one's reality to the person to whom one lies, making that person one's master, condemning oneself from then on to faking the sort of reality that person's view requires to be faked. And if one gains the immediate purpose of the lie, the price one pays is the destruction of that which was intended to serve the man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on I first of all the the person's personality would fall down in my eyes right. it happened to me it was a very close
6: friend of mine
1: no yeah uh, I mean <laughs> how has that affected the relationship
7: since I think he knew that he lied and he knew that I know about it when you know you're doing something wrong you you pulling back right
1: so he doesn't talk to you as much now? No, yes. Yeah.
3: As you say, he's, he, he become a slave.
1: Again, people think that a liar gains a victory over his victim. What I've learned is that a lie is an act of self-abdication because one surrenders one's reality to the person to whom one lies making that person one's master, condemning oneself from then on to faking the sort of reality that person's view requires to be faked. And if one gains the immediate purpose of the lie, the price one pays is the destruction of that which was intended to serve. The man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on.
6: When I was was assistant manager for Domino's Pizza up in Fort Knox, we had some money go missing from the store. So... They had every member of management and every employee who had access to the money take a lie detector test. Mm-hmm. The, the store in Radcliffe does a million dollars. Back then,
3: uh-huh.
6: this, is, this is when I first got married, so 81, did a million dollars a year in sales. Mm-hmm. So we all took lie detector tests. You know, they asked us all the questions and asked us all about it. And basically... If you want to put it down to who was lying and who wasn't, there was only one person who the lie detector test said, told the absolute truth all the way through. All the rest of us lied. (laughs) So what did you? I lied. I lied in that not that something I had done was wrong, but that it wasn't proper procedure. You know, basically at the end of the night when you're closing out a store, you have to reconcile your cash. So you count all your cash, and you count all your sales, and, and you get done, and you've done $10,000 worth of business that night, and you're 75 cents off. So you could sit and go through and figure out who wrote down a wrong number somewhere, or you can coupon out 75 cents. I got you. Okay. I didn't want to stay for two more hours. All right. So I would coupon out $0.75 because it was probably just somebody inverted two numbers when they wrote it down. So have you ever manipulated paperwork to hide the loss of money? Well, no.
2: <laughs>
6: <laughs> but none of us had failed it to the point of saying that's the guilty party. right? We all failed it on things like that. Maybe we took a dollar out of the till to get a Coke out of the Coke machine. Maybe we made an extra pizza that night and took it home for ourselves without paying for it. Maybe we gave our friend a bad order instead of what we're supposed to do, which is either give it to the local police or throw it away. None, no, none of us had actually, you know, taken money from the a significant amount of money from the till. Six months later I was no longer at that store. Finally found out who had done it. And out of all those people who had done it, the one person who absolutely told the truth the entire way through the lie detector test, according to the lie detector test? I think the lie detector test is reliable. I don't think he thought he was lying when he answered the questions. Ah. You see, the lie detector test is really checks to see whether you think you're telling the truth. Mm. So you convinced himself. You talked about you 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 make an alternate reality he was not guilty of anything because in his reality, everything he did was okay. Where I'm looking at it and saying, as I said, you know, couponing out that 75 cents was against the rules. Therefore, when I said, no, I haven't manipulated it. I was lying to myself in my own mind because I knew that what I had done was quote, not right to him. He could have answered that same question the same way. And I know he did it too, because all of us did that kind of manipulation. And, he would have come out since telling the truth. I think that any time you get into lying, if you can convince yourself it's right, you get away with it. But do any of us respect that gentleman? I wouldn't hire him. And I wouldn't hire him and I wouldn't respect him. Yeah. Because he took it and felt no remorse for it. He's created an alternate universe where he's all right, but the rest of us view him as a crook.
1: People think that a liar gains a victory over his victim. What I've learned is that a lie is an act of self-abdication because one surrenders one's reality to the person to whom one lies, making that person one's master, condemning oneself from then on to faking the sort of reality that person's view requires to be faked. And if one gains the immediate purpose of the lie, the price one pays is the destruction of that which was intended to serve. The man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on.
8: If we're going to try to get in the head of somebody who just pathologically lies, they would probably think the opposite, that they have the world however they want it, because they can they can be whoever they want, they can do whatever they want, in their minds, not have any consequences, not have anybody think the worst for them. They can kind of write their own reality. But to me, I mean, what... what lying does is it cuts you off from reality cuts you off from uh, the real world and other people who can most of the time maybe not right away but start seeing through start seeing the cracks kind of show at that point the the liar the pathological liar goes from like the the most powerful creature to the most pathetic creature mm-hmm. in the eyes of people who are still kind of grounded in reality
1: well it seems like when I'm talking to people about politics, and I, I may say something disparaging about someone who lied, you know, in politics. You know, imagine that. And mm-hmm. sometimes that person's defender will say, you're just naive. By yeah. any means necessary, or, or the greater good, you know, means breaking a few eggs. All all those kind of cliche things they say. What, what's your yeah. take on that?
8: Yeah, everybody, you know, so blibbly, they'll say, like, oh, a politician is like a paid liar. And everything they say is a lie to just kind of push their agenda forward. But to me... And maybe I'm naive too. I don't know. I think if, if we're gonna have shared policies, shared uh, politics, we have to have some things that we agree on, some that are re- you know, actually real. Whereas it seems like right now, and I don't want to, I don't want to get too political or anything, but sure. it seems like right now we've got two sides totally defining their reality. If anybody from the other side were to say, "Hey, uh, actually, you might want to change this fact because it's not lining up with what reality is." they'll say, well, you know, you're, you're just watching the wrong news network. Yeah. Or you're just, you know, you're not paying attention to the right people. You need to go to this website and read this article. <laughs> and it, it gets frustrating because, you know, I, I want to, I have definite po- political beliefs, and I definitely vote one party over the other. But I want to talk to the other party. I want to talk to, you know, people that believe differently. And I want to have that kind of good faith conversation of, hey, we can disagree on this. And I'll give you the reasons why I disagree, but we don't have to live in completely different insulated little worlds where, you know, we can't even have a conversation without without even having the, the same vocabulary, you know. It's kinda it's kind of a sad moment we're in, I think.
1: Yeah. One of my professors has pointed this out that at the American founding, you know, the, the founders anticipated that not everybody was gonna agree. They thought they had set up a system where everybody could coexist but everything was kind of resting on the fact that everyone had to agree that ever, everyone has the right to exist. Right, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we, it does seem that at least some of the extremes on both sides these days mm-hmm. would, would right. prefer to see the other ones obliterated.
8: That's not what America is founded on. America is founded on we can, we can disagree and still, still be American. We can be better because we disagree if I think I'm right about everything and I write something and put it out there and let's say, I think C.S. Lewis did this once where he wrote something and he got one little bit of criticism. He might want to change this one thing. And he he did. And there's like all kinds of stories about that he got like really freaked out about that he was wrong about it. But to you know to his credit, he, he changed it and uh, his point was better made for it. And it just seems like so both sides of the political spectrum are just going to kind of continue to deteriorate and get kind of more and more dangerous if there's no common common language, common, common ground to come together and uh, speak, the same, speak the same words. To me, that's, that's, that's how America can, can be stronger, is by different people sitting around the table talking about issues and talking about what makes America really great. And sadly, it just just seems to be on the other direction
1: right now. And last quote, remember, all men would be tyrants if
7: they could. We don't understand human nature. I don't propose that I fully understand human nature, but I think this statement... It's probably made by somebody who's had a lot of experience with one aspect of human nature and that is the unredeemed. And I think that unredeemed human nature, absolutely, you know, everybody would be a tyrant of that. That's some of the best science fiction in the world, you know, deals with with this of the greatest history in the world. Yeah, right. I just watched the original Frankenstein movie with my son. And boy, it's amazing how that movie does not hold up uh, in a lot of levels. The (laughs) novel, which is
1: not anything like it, but it's a great moral
7: tale if you've ever read it. But go ahead. Yeah. And I was trying to explain the difference. But yeah, I get on the unredeemed level, even looking at the disciples, you'd think, man, if I'd been hanging out with Jesus for years, I'd like to think I'd get it. Mm -hmm. And they still clearly don't get it. They're still asking questions that make it perfectly clear that they don't understand what's going on. Now that
1: you bring that up, you know, of course, Jesus crucified, you know, raises up and leaves, ascends. And then all of a sudden it's all on these guys. And it hadn't been a few days and they were still doing kind of dumb stuff and <laughs> acting like children. And all of a sudden the church rests on them. I don't think they're changed over. And I know. And you see that in the Acts a little bit, that there's some power struggles going on. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't call it tyrant, but there's yeah. definitely a sense of control
7: issues. Because there's a struggle between the redeemed man and the irredeemed or unredeemed mm-hmm. man. And, and so when we're talking about unredeemed man, we're talking about human nature. Yes, mm-hmm. I think that our nature is to protect ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that even the best-intentioned person is probably going to ultimately think, I know what's right. Right. But especially in the church. Oh, even worse, yeah. Forget the secular
1: politics or in government, all that. Even in some of the best people that started off great, and I would say probably were redeemed as far as we could tell, end up drinking their own Kool-Aid or, <laughs> or too many people tell them they're awesome or they're an authority of God or something, and uh, they get lost and they can't take criticism. They, right. you know, they get full
7: of pride and... All these things, so... And that's where I'm going, is that this this daily dying to self. Mm. So if, if we talk about what then does it mean to be redeemed of that, and that's the idea of dying to self. And so if if every day I'm dying to myself, and if I can for a moment think through what is the self, the self, if we want to go back into psychological terms, you know, um, the self is the part of us that's struggling to survive. It's, the, it's where our identity lives. It's where our ideas are, our sense of all of that lives in the, our self. And so that's where the tyrant is, is in the self. Mm-hmm. Even the, the magnanimous tyrant, you know, the, the beneficent tyrant is in the self. And so anytime we don't die to self, we're absolutely going to become some kind of a tyrant. Whether it's a passive-aggressive or just a flat-out aggressive tyrant, it doesn't matter. We're going to be some kind of tyrant. Mm. And some are just going to be better at it than others. Some are just not smart enough to pull it off so they become manipulators or they become statisticians or something else. But to me, that is the real challenge. And honestly, that's the scariest aspect that I see at work in our culture right now. Our aspect isn't the right word. The scariest fruit <laughs> I see Coming from what is called the church in America right now is that it's supposedly a Christian culture, um, and yet the fruit that is coming off of the tree is avarice, violence, self. I mean, we're in election season right now, and it is lies. You know, it is just manipulation and. Some of it's outright violence, even. Oh, absolutely, violence. (laughs) It's self-protection. I mean, that when you talk about the, the Christians who support politicians because, the, even though the politicians on, on one side are flat out promoting an anti-gospel agenda, they say, well, yeah, but they're going to do what we want on this, this, or this. And so they're throwing in with politicians because they support. Well, that's, that's tyranny. It's self-protection. We're going to support this because it's uh, protecting us on this. It's it's a lack of faith and it's a lack of dying to self Mm -hmm. by saying, well, we don't trust God to actually be sovereign. So we're going to put our own bully in place to help us because God's obviously not got it covered when it comes to this issue or this issue or this issue. Or worse, God somehow wants this bully to be the one there, and so the. Right now, the fruit that's coming is not the fruit of the spirit. It's not love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, self-control. It's not any of that. It's anger, vitriol, panic, fear, racism, xenophobia. It's terrible. And to me, all of that is tyranny because it's the self. antidote to that Mm -hmm. is to die to self. But that doesn't happen again once. And that's one of the great fallacies of the modern evangelical expression is this formula of you get saved and then you buy Christian products for a long time and that makes you a Christian. Mm. It's like, no, you daily pick up your cross, you know, you daily die to yourself and follow. And that's much more Eastern when you think about mindfulness. Mm -hmm. This is more Buddhist in a lot of ways. It's like you get up and you center yourself and you think about who you are and where you are and what is your mission and are you breathing or not and all this okay. kind of stuff. And that to me is dying to self every day. Who am I? What am I doing? What's my purpose? What's my mission? And what am I doing today, right now? What am I thinking and feeling that's causing me to go off script mm-hmm. and off the plane? And how do I? how can I die to myself right now? Where is the self taking me that's not the gospel? And if we were doing that more the church would be a lot less politically influential and a lot less culturally influential because it would be going counter to all of the machinations of power, uh, but it would be a lot more like what we see in the Scripture. And I think it would probably be a lot more attractive to a lot of people who mm. are really needy.
1: One thing I'll say, maybe you can respond to this, is that um, I notice that like when I've got it together, at least I think I've got it together, that's when I'm at my worst as far as, like, being Christ-like. Become prideful. I think I know all the answers. But when I mess up and, like, do something that's clearly bad, then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, man, I'm human. And I'm, then I'm back to have died to myself because I've, there's my sin. Oh, okay. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and almost, not that I go out and just, you know, you know, strangle kittens every once in a while just to keep myself humble, but, <laughs> you know, you. but... Uh, I think there's a Brennan Manning quote that I'll probably work into this eventually, but like he's kind of paraphrasing something that Paul said that God uses all things to good, even sin. And right. and I, I feel like that's the good thing that comes out of it because I can't look down on anybody. Maybe after six months of being a good guy, I can. Or I, I find myself doing it. <laughs> but then, I,
7: you know. All of a sudden you're like, oh, I'm Yeah, yeah and, I it. Yeah. No, I, I think that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way right now. Yeah.
1: Again, remember, all men would be
4: tyrants if they could. I think, um, again, as a born-again evangelical Christian, I believe that we are born into original sin and that our nature is evil with some good tendencies, not our nature is good with some evil tendencies. I think that's why socialism would never work because we are evil with good tendencies, not good with evil tendencies. And therefore people aren't going to walk around and go, well, let me just do what needs to be done because it needs to be done. People are more prone to walk around to do the least amount that they can do to receive what they need.
1: Let's say that this person saying was actually being gender-specific and was saying that there was something about males that there's a um, a tendency to be dominant or a tendency to be a tyrant. I don't know if this person was saying that females weren't prone to it, but let's let's explore that. Do you, first of all, think... That that's something that males fall prey to, of being tyrants.
4: Well, I definitely do not think what I just expressed is gender-specific at all. I think all humans are...
1: Females, too? Yes. Okay. Are there differences between males
4: and females when it comes to power, do you think? Hmm. I certainly think there's differences between men and women. I think there's differences in the way we think. But when I was thinking of tyrant... I was just thinking of sort of evil instead of maybe
1: a, well, poli- an political leader political leader
2: right
1: okay oh evil in general yeah okay yeah I mean it could apply to both somebody in power and, and like in government but also in the home yeah yeah or in a workplace relationship.
4: I think I'm willing to concede that men probably are more susceptible to the evils of power uh, than women. I tend to think of it as sort of a spectrum, like, okay, this is 100% male thinking over here, and this is 100% female right. thinking over here, and I think all of us fall on the spectrum somewhere, so...
1: I guess from a historical point of view, that since men almost had a monopoly on power, it's hard to give other examples, but there are, have been women that were you know, empresses in <clears throat> uh, different situations, and they were just... They as big committed of, atrocities, the same as men did. Yeah, know. they were just as big of jerks as men, but... I was just curious if you thought that men and women in a general sense handle power differently
4: um, certainly, I think they handle power differently because I think men and women relate to other people differently I mean they just do mm-hmm. and so that means how they handle their power is going to be different but I think um, the aim is still the same when I you know that what's the old saying um, absolute power corrupts absolutely and yeah power you know, corrupts and absolute power corrupts yeah. absolutely I don't know. But I think that's true of women and men, that once in power, the the desire to stay in power is innate in all of us, men and women, and the willingness to do what it takes to keep a hold of that power is strong in both of them. How they would go about it might be different, but in the end, it's still probably Mm -hmm. evil.
1: Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. I
9: have a fairly dim view of humanity. Um, and so the idea that uh, anyone with power tends to, to overuse it, if they're allowed to, uh, kind of rings true.
1: Let me ask you this then. Is that based on some experiences you've had? And if so, uh, can you give us an example?
9: I think everyone has had the coworker who has risen to a managerial position. You get a, a, a little power, you have to be a little tougher to prove you're not one of the crew anymore.
1: Like, try to distinguish yourself from the, the, the peons? Exactly. I've had a, a couple
9: of people who, all along the way, the, the higher they rise, the more they like to distance themselves. To the extent that you feel like you're not really on the same side anymore, one boss in particular, I was working for uh, in a restaurant. Uh, well, this this restaurant was part of a major restaurant grouping chain. We were located inside of a, a mall with our own entrance and exit. It's quite profitable uh, for a long time, and then one of the department stores decided that it was going to. Cover our uh, expand and cover our our entrance. We used to stay open later. The moment that things started to shut down in the mall, we had to shut down too. One New Year's, we were told we had to stay open even though the mall would be closed, which made absolutely no sense.
1: So no customers could get in the building. Right. I think there was. I think
9: there might have been one entrance that was going to be open. There was another restaurant that was affiliated with us on the other side of the mall, and you probably would have been able to get in there, but why walk through that restaurant and walk <laughs> two blocks <laughs> to come to Ottawa? Right. The assistant manager that was scheduled to work that night kind of fought tooth and nail with him and couldn't get anywhere to make him see any sense. That assistant manager pretty much let everyone off except for like one or two people that he just had to have there, basically working with no crew whatsoever. During that shift, the general manager called, disguising himself, wanting to do a to-go order. Oh, no. And <laughs> the, the manager on duty basically told him what was up. said, we can make your food, but you're probably not going to be able to get in. <laughs> uh, and he got in
1: trouble for it. So do you think, looking back, like this person who was the boss had a problem with power or maybe one of those people that couldn't admit they had made a mistake or, or just malicious? I kind of think he, there was a malicious tendency as well. I mean, he, he did things like he would post
9: schedules. Uh, seems like we probably did it two weeks in advance or a week and a half in advance. You know, about midweek, he would post the next schedule. He would change his schedule daily. He would, have, he would give you your schedule, and then it was your responsibility to check your schedule daily because when you thought you were off, you may not actually be off because the schedule may change. Wow. And you would be disciplined
1: if you didn't show up for work. So even if you weren't there, your schedule could change, and you could either show up on the wrong day or not show up on the day you were supposed to because no one bothered to tell you? Exactly. Oh, my goodness. And so I, I'm with you. I can imagine, what if this guy had his own country? <laughs> and there's been you know, leaders like that that just sure. you know, completely have wrecked a country because of their own ego or just uh, need to control people. So I have a question for you then. Have you ever had any power? And how did you, how did you do with it?
9: I guess you could say I'm a, I'm, I'm a little boss. I'm a supervisor. I've worked in various supervisory roles. The older I get, the less I like to assert myself. I feel like things tend to run better with the obvious, you know, education, training for whatever position, obviously. But having peers coach rather than someone in power tell you how it's supposed to work. As long as there's not anything dubious going on, letting people be tends to do better. It allows things to grow organically. People in power can play with this by saying, Today I want you to work over here for a little while. We're gonna we're gonna develop this side of you a little bit. But we'll let you go back to comfort in a little bit. That's okay. Slowly, organically letting people develop sides of themselves that they need to. But it makes more sense to me to leave people alone. They're
3: happier.
1: Well, I think probably the counter argument to what you're saying is, being made by people in power is like, you can't trust people. You gotta tell them what to do, they're idiots. You know, if you're not watching them, they're gonna steal, they're gonna sleep, you know, they're gonna play on their phones. So how do you answer that? Well, yes.
9: I mean, and I think that's part of the role of the leader is to watch for stuff like that. Playing on the phone's a good example certain people will play on their phones too much. It becomes very obvious. And so that's when you step in and you say, hey, you know you're not supposed to do this. Don't do it. I'm finding that to be true as long as you know, you've know you got someone there who can step in with a little more authority and say, look, you're not being fair to the, the people who are really working hard. Step it up just a little bit. In a previous job I had, I was told I had to be a jerk And I was pretty much coached to be a pretty good jerk (laughs) Uh, to the extent that I made people cry a couple of times during my, my stint there. Wow. This was a club and uh, I was a bartender within this establishment. There were interviews and press releases of the owner. And, uh, in one of them, it was a, One of the questions in one of the interviews was, what's the best, most recent book you've read? And it was uh, the title of the book, I remember, although I've never found the book, was how How to Manage with Intimidation.
1: Seriously? Seriously. Golly.
9: And, well, here's the funny thing. He was the nicest guy in the world. He was highly successful.
1: Did he rule with intimidation?
9: For the most part, no. I could say he very rarely dealt with employees. However, if you got called into his office, it was a different feeling. You know, it was like, what's going on? You know, that sort of impending doom. (laughs) As a matter of fact, in later years, I was called in there a couple of times, and and, he would introduce the the scenario by saying, you're not in trouble. (laughs) there There would be, you know, a breath, a sigh of relief that would just come out.
5: Again, remember, all men would be tyrants if they could. Uh, I think it is true that, like they say, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I think power and, and overabundance of money allows you to be who you really are. I don't think it uh, changes people so much. I think it just allows people to be who they are. So it unlocks they. the bad stuff that's in you. I think it's there. I think it reveals it. Just like pressure. This guy, he gave this illustration. He said he was in a, he worked in this pipe making company. And that to test the pipe, they would put pressure on the pipe and it to see if it could hold the pressure. And they said he would, it's supposed to hold like 50,000 pounds. So they would start 10,000 pounds, 20,000 pounds. Well, sometimes 30,000 pounds, they would hear ps. So would you say the pressure made the flaw or revealed the flaw? You know what I'm saying? Right. And most, you would have to say that basically it it just revealed the flaw. It didn't create the flaw.
1: And now the source of the quotes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Is by Langston Hughes who was an early 20th century American jazz poet, known as a leading figure during the Harlem Renaissance. Hughes's phrase, Raisin in the Sun, was used as the title of a Broadway play, which debuted in 1959, initially starring Ruby Dee, Lou Gossett, and Sidney Poitier. Next quote. People think that a liar gains a victory over his victim. What I've learned is that A lie is an act of self-abdication because one surrenders one's reality to the person to whom one lies, making that person one's master, condemning oneself from then on to faking the sort of reality that person's view requires to be faked. And if one gains the immediate purpose of the lie, the price one pays is the destruction of that which was intended to serve. The man who lies to the world is the world's slave from then on. Is by Ayn Rand, who was a Jewish-Russian writer and philosopher who became known for her two great novels, The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Rand also created the philosophical system of objectivism, which championed human rights and laissez-faire economics. And last quote, Remember, all men would be tyrants if they could, was by Abigail Adams, who was the wife of President John Adams, the mother of President John Quincy Adams, and was considered at America's founding to have owned one of the highest intellects among the women of her age, including by her friend and sometimes rival, Thomas Jefferson. I should say something about this quote in that the way you heard it today is how I initially heard it, although I eventually came across the full quote, which, come to find out, was gender-specific. So, here is the quote in its entirety. As it was written in a letter to her husband, John, who was, at the time, helping craft the American government, at the 1776 Continental Congress, Quote, I desire you would remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them than your ancestors. Do not put such unlimited power into the hands of husbands. Remember all men would be tyrants if they could. If particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to form a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation, Unquote
3: in the corner back by the woodpile is produced by a closet a pocket in a suitcase you can listen to this podcast on itunes stitcher or podbean.com if you'd like to send us some hate mail you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com see ya and i wouldn't want to be ya <laughs>